Indigenous Outdoors is a not-for-profit program that seeks to learn and teach Indigenous language and ways of thinking. We hope to do this by getting people out on the land and engaged in activities that were done by our Indigenous ancestors. Whether we are making arrowheads in a city park or canoeing on a lake, we consider ourselves very blessed to be able to keep learning engaging and exciting. We want to work with the Knowledge Keepers to learn the old ways and to incorporate Indigenous language in the teachings. We hope you have as much fun with these podcasts as we did making them. Today we will be making a stone knife while learning about ancient North American weapons, trade routes, and lifestyles. Our knowledge keeper today is Gabriel Lamarche. Gabriel is an Anishinaabe member of the Beausoleil First Nation. He grew up around Georgian Bay on Lake Huron, but has lived in central Saskatchewan for the last 12 years. Mr. Lamarche is an archaeologist and a flintknapper, which means that he knows how to make arrowheads and knives from stone. This is Eric Standing with Indigenous Outdoors. We are here with Gabriel Lamarche. Did I pronounce your name right? Yeah. Okay. <coughs> oh man, this spot is uh, pretty nice. Mm-hmm. Which park yeah. is this? Miwasin. 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 It looks good. Is that what that means? <laughs> I think so, yeah. Really? Yeah. Cool. Could I get one of those? Absolutely, here. Menthol, even. Oh, American. <laughs> you get down there much? Uh, I just had a buddy come up. It seems like you travel back and forth quite a bit. I do. My mom is just about... Um, my mom lives about four miles south of the medicine line. Oh, shit. Oh, yeah. Medicine. Yeah, she's... Uh, Munias from mm. North Dakota. Mm. I don't know if that's a derogatory term or not. It's just what I was thinking. Yeah, uh, yeah I, I don't know. I... The... I mean, I'm pretty fair as well, but like, um, I've heard that that word might be traced back to like the early, early, early fur traders when they were coming out. Mm-hmm. It might be related to the Montreal, Montreal. I've heard that too. I've heard that too. Just recently, actually. Yeah. Eh? I speak in North Dakota, so maybe I'll start with this rock. This rock is, um, it's a kind of petrified wood from North Dakota. You know, it has like this almost chocolatey texture. And it's a real pleasure to flint nap. It uh, is really quite brittle and has a nice grainy texture, or a nice smooth texture, not grainy at all. Um, and so it wasn't often used very much for tools because it's not super durable for a stone. These other stones are more durable. But um, when this stuff gets exposed to water, it like rusts a bright red, like it makes ochre, right? You know, like the sacred red. And so sometimes you'll see this even though it doesn't make the most durable tools, it'll be traded long distances. So I found a piece, a, t- a little tool made out of this, a little woodworking tool, at Wanaskewin, north of Saskatoon here, and it comes from, you know, 900 kilometers south. Really? Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So, like, with the old stonework, there was a lot of long-distance trade. There was also, you know, most of the tools tended to be made of local materials, but always about 10 or 15% of the material we find at any site you know tends to be we call it exotic right because it's traded in from a long ways mm-hmm. 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 okay yeah i'm gonna um 
what kind of stone did you say that was again? They call it Rainy Buttes Petrified Wood. Rainy Buttes Petrified Wood. If you want to ask questions at any points or like, go ahead. Yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> for some of the words, for like the materials, it's really hard because, you know, so much of the vocabulary, the old vocabulary, nobody uses it anymore. And so like it kind of atrophies and fades. And so in Nishnabemuin, there is a word for flint, a biwanag. Biwanag. And I, th- I think it literally means it, it's really fine. Biwanag. Biwanag, yeah. Um, I think it means it, it's quite fine. Because like, th- it's not like a granite or sandstone where you have these gritty crystals in it. So it's quite, it's quite a distinct material. Does that make it flake better? It makes it so that when the ma- when force enters into the material, it travels through very uniformly. It doesn't like have to jank around all these different crystals and shit. Okay. Yeah. So you know, Cree and Nishnabemun are like distantly related languages, eh? Like, Gagach Bejaguan, Gagach Bejaguan. They're almost the same. A lot of the vocabulary is really close. Really. Yeah. Um, so like, even when you you said your name there, like the the road. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it, like. That word I could understand. There was a, an extra S. We, we would say Miskanau. Miskanau. Yeah. Or uh, Mikanau. Yeah. I, I get mixed up sometimes. <laughs> I've been out here in Cree territory and now now it's like I have my own dialect of Oji Cree only. I understand. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, there's there's this word in, in uh, Ojibwe we say Fakte. Uh, Fakte means to like strike something. There's a cognate of that word in Cree, paskiteo. Paskiteo means it throws out sparks. If you go back 500 years, if you trace those words back, it, I think it originally referred to striking flint. Oh, okay. Yeah. How did you say that again? In Nishnavimwin, we say bakte. Bakte. And in Cree, paskiteo. Paskiteo. That's the, yeah. Paskiteo. Huh. Um... And those are Algonquin languages? Yeah, exactly. Okay. And so, in the archaeology, there's like, um, these languages have a common origin together. You only need about 1,500 or 1,800 years to explain the divergence in the languages. That the languages aren't that divergent. It's not like Diné and Cree, right? Those languages are really, really different from each other. Like, on deep fundamental levels, they don't have a lot in common. But Nishnabemuin and Nehiyawewin, even like... Uh, Ne-hi-ya-weh. Or even if you go over to Swampy Cree, it's even closer because they have that N dialect. Ne-hi-na-weh. Ne-shi-na-beh. Like the, the pronunciation has shifted over time, but the, the core of the language, it shares this common root. So like there's a lot of words, especially in the Swampy Cree that are really close to Ojibwe. It's kind of like an N dialect. Okay. So I, I, when it comes to flint napping, uh, and that what you have to strike with is that looks like copper to yeah, me. Yeah, copper. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Exactly. I have done a little bit of this before, uh, but nothing. Uh, yeah. I have a friend in Mike Atchison who I'd like to get on the program sometime. To, uh, yeah. So some flint nappers today they they say copper is like cheating because it's modern, but that's not exactly true. Around the Great Lakes, there were there were ancient copper mines that go back thousands of years. But, you know, we have words for them in our language, Misquabic. I think in Cree it's Mihkwapisk. Uh, yeah, Mihkwapisk. Mihkwapisk. Yeah. 
and uh, Meskwabek in the uh, Wood. I don't consider it cheating, right? Because the ancestors, they did use copper. Uh, I'm definitely bending the rules though. Most flint mappers probably didn't use copper in the past. So there's a few like rules and guidelines that you can apply to make sense of the physics here, that this is physics. It's not like in the movies where it's just random thrashing and bashing. You know, you're just hitting the rock and hoping. There is, a, you know, a little bit of luck and hope involved, but it is, at its core, it's physics. So, have you ever shot a window with a BB gun? Yes. I and it knocks out that perfect little cone. Right. So, that happens because the material is strong in compression, but weak in tension. So, as the force enters into the material and it radiates out, everywhere that's being compressed tends to remain intact. But where that fracture occurs is where there's this pulling. So, this sort of has the exact same properties that... Um, when you strike it, I'm just trying to set up a good spot here on the edge. So the idea is you're kind of trying to get one big chunk off of that, yeah. that workable piece. Well, I'll probably work this down into even just one big spear point, but... Okay. Oh, shit, should have obeyed that some more. So where I struck down there, right, everywhere that was being compressed tended to remain intact, but at the edge of that, that sort of radiating cone of force is where the fracture occurs. And it is sort of tricky because you, you can't look at it happen. You have to be able to kind of map the geometry of it in your head and plan out the angle you need to strike it at. And then you have to turn it away so, so you don't damage your eyes. You never want to work towards your eyes. Eyeballs don't grow back. And these... You can see it throws off quite a lot of little sharp flakes. So it is sort of like, you have to be able to map out the geometry in your head and keep track of it as you're working it. So what I'm doing now, I'm just sort of getting rid of the fineness of the edge, upgrading it so that it can absorb the amount of force that I want to deliver into it, to actually remove the flakes I want to remove. And so from layman's terms here, uh. <clears throat> we're looking at possibility of just any kind of sharp thing, knife blades, arrowheads, spear points, uh, maybe hide scrapers, mm. that kind of idea. A lot were also made out of bone or antler, but the same sort of physics are put into making knives and scrapers and points. So with scrapers, they would often take a flake a little bit bigger than this, and then they would only work it... Archaeologists call it unifacially. It just means they would just only work it from one side. And so that it kind of builds up this little stout edge. I'm just taking a bunch of little flakes off around the edge here. Bunch of little pressure flakes being pushed off. Oh, be a little bit careful, a little bit more controlled. Don't rush it too hard. So it kind of uh, builds up on a small scale, this little stout edge right here. It's not very acute of an angle, it's a lot more stout, but that stout angle is, is really kind of good and durable for working a hide. And even these little serrades are really good at catching onto the membrane and peeling it off. So often hide scrapers would have what archaeologists call a unifacial um, working edge, where it wasn't worked on both sides back and forth. It was just only worked on one side to give you that stout little edge. 
as opposed to a biface. So a biface, a biface has been worked on both sides where there's flakes running from the edge across both faces. And so you want to have a nice symmetrical sort of lens shaped cross section in both dimensions so it has a lot of good strength in the middle where it needs it to resist any bending forces. Uh, an edge that roughly bisects the mass of the piece so you have good symmetry. Cool. That is beautiful. Thank you. It's, it's an absolute beautiful piece of work. It's like a southern Mississippian style of point. It's kind of like a archaeologists would call it like an Aggie. Yeah, but it comes from down south of the Mississippi. Okay. Yeah. South of the Great River. Yeah. I understand Mississippi is a Algonquin word. Mm-hmm. Do you know what it means or what it translates as? Great River. Great River. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Or Kitchazibi. Yeah, Great River. And this river that we're beside here yeah. is the North Saskatchewan. I think this one is the South Saskatchewan. South Saskatchewan. Yeah. I can't exactly remember what that translates to in Cree. I know it has something to do with river. I think it means like a um, little bit like muddy water. Oh, okay. Because the, the water here tends to be a little bit turbulent. There's often a little bit of silt in it. And so it kind of has a, a bit of a chocolate milk, milky sort of color. So I think that's what it means. Yeah. But, yeah, a lot of times when you're in different areas, those exotic materials we were talking about, often they were traded down the rivers. And so sometimes in this area, at the ancestral Cree sites, we find traces of obsidian. So if you trace this river all the way back up to its headwaters, it's in the Rocky Mountains out west, where they do have those dormant volcanoes. So. Speaks to the ancient trade routes that were here. Mm -hmm. Prior to colonization, I guess. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like when the fur traders showed up, they just tapped into the pre existing trade roads. Right. Yeah. There's already a trail <laughs> yeah. wide rebuilt. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I understand a lot of the highways and things, too, are just trails that became wagon <laughs> trails that became highways. Exactly. Uh, um, do you want to try taking a few hits at this? Sure. There we go. That's the spirit. Little flakes like that, uh, archaeologists just call them blades as they come off. They're already razor sharp. They're good to... Wow. Yeah. So pieces like that could be... You know, you could probably butcher most of a deer with that. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Okay. So, have a seat. Sure. I might get you to maybe... Uh Fix Absolutely. Okay. Ready. Yep. Yeah, have a seat. Have a seat. I'm just trying to find a good spot for you to start with here. Yeah, my friend that does this does quill work too so I've learned to be very careful where I sit <laughs> when I go to visit him. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it doesn't always work though you can't see everything. Yeah, it's worth it. So um, so there's this little guideline that like flint nappers have it's this general sort of rule that's um, only work at or below the center line of mass. So if you look at this okay. piece edge on 
you can see that there are these low spots. Yeah. It, it should be fairly safe to hit these low spots, but over here, like that's that's way too high up. Even over here, that's too high up on the center line of mass. Okay, okay. And so it would be safe to hit here, but not here. If you hit here, as that cone of force enters the material, it'll be compressing a massive area, and it that's that it's strong in compression, and so it'll want to try to find an easier way to release the force. But if you hit a low spot as that force radiates out, it's a little small controlled fracture. That's kind of the name of the game is to mitigate and control the fractures so that you can predict them. These small little controlled... On the northern plains, North Dakota has... Well, it's kind of the like the heartland of good lithic materials. There's this stuff and then there's Knife River Flint from the Knife River Flint quarries done in Mercer County there. What I've heard good things about Knife River Flint and its accessibility down there. Yeah. And it's a, if you want some, I'll throw on for a bit of padding. Yeah, sure. And also it'll probably be easier if uh, you're righty. Yeah. Okay. Throw that on your okay. leg. And so that way you can kind of hold the piece on your leg and you don't have to freehand it so much. Right, all right. And if you do want gloves, there are some. Yeah, I'll definitely. You're dressed a little bit more formally. It's not the warmest day. <laughs> yeah, right. No, I'll, I'll be all right. I was ready for a day at the uh, casu or, yeah, <laughs> casino. but Okay, uh, so good. I would suggest holding it a little bit more like a hammer. You can hold it like that. Okay. But hold it in such a way that um, when you swing it, you can kind of have good, accurate control where you can consistently hit where you want to. Okay. Okay. Something like that. Yeah, and so either this spot or this low spot would be good. Because of how they're centered. Exactly, and I've abraded them so that they won't, they shouldn't just crush. They should actually absorb a fair bit of force before the fracture actually initiates. And that's what you're using the granite for? Yeah. That, that's granite that you have. Exactly. Just to, okay. Might even switch to a sandstone. Get it one more. Polish. Okay, so either one of those low spots. So try not to hit too high up. It's okay. okay to miss out here. You can miss out here all day long and it won't hurt the stone. Yeah. But, yeah. So maybe right about there? Sure. A little harder. Oh. Okay. So that started a little fracture. It didn't run very far. I'm just going to upgrade that and set it back up. That is the one thing with this material is it's brittle. Uh-huh. If you don't abrade the bejesus out of it, it can easily crush. So the obsidian is melted, what, sand is it, or is it a volcanic Basically, like glass? Basically, yeah. 98% silica. It's chemically pretty similar to quartz or glass, yeah. Okay. It just has trace amounts of other uh, metals in it that tend to give it the colors, either black or red. Or... So just try another one of these low spots again. And maybe just strike, not quite right on the edge, but maybe up into around there or there. Yeah. All right. Oh, a little harder. Okay, there we go. There's something come off anyway. So that came off there. You can see the scar left okay, behind. Okay, okay, you can. It's almost like a puzzle. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Very Some archaeologists cool. will try to, like, they'll try to fit things back together like a jigsaw puzzle, missing half the pieces sometimes to figure out what was being made. How would you say arrowhead in Anishinaabe? Am I saying it right, Anishinaabe? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Where I come from, often we drop the A at the front. We just say Nishnabe, but yeah. Nishnabe. Um, yeah, I could see this being a totally workable piece of meat cutting. Oh, yeah. As the flakes come off, they're wow. already, they're sharp. So sometimes even in Europe, they were, 
sometimes I might say they were a little bit lazy flint nappers. They didn't put in all the effort we did for some of the, during some time periods, they would just use blades. They would just snap these blades and use just sections of these blades on the tips of their arrows, just like a chisel point. Nah, <laughs> just like a, like a paint scraper <laughs> yeah. almost. Wow. Um, so arrowhead uh, in Nishnabe Moen, um, there's a bunch of different ways to say it. So you can say like um, Biwana Goons, like the Biwana from earlier, Biwana Goons, like Biwana a little, goons. Piece, little piece of flint. Okay. You can also say um, Nabaigan, the Naba. thing tied on the end. Nabaigan. 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 Yeah, the thing tied on the end. There's another word that I think... Um, Ajijak, 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 dance, Ajijak, dance. I think is another way. I'm not positive on that one, but it might actually refer to the shape of a, a like a crane or heron's bill. Really? Yeah. I'm not positive on that one. That's yeah. a cool uh, symbolism, you know, <laughs> yeah. for sure. Another old word might be. Um, well, we we have this word like we say a uh, jimagan. In Cree, I think it's simakan, simakan, simakan. I've heard the word. And it can mean like a, a policeman today. People will use it for a policeman or a soldier. But I think the original meaning meant um, like someone who who has a lance. Because a lance, you use it defensively. You don't, you know, it's like, you know, uh, yeah, it's not like an arrow where you're shooting at long distance. It's more right. of a defensive tool for protecting the people. Jimagan. Oh, okay. Jimagan. And so I think that's, even in powwows, you know, the the the, the lance bearers that open up with? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. I think that's another word, Jimagan, Jimagan. Jimagan, Jimagan, lance bearer. Yeah. And uh, I think originally it meant, it referred to the, the spears, big spear points. Big spear points on a lance. Okay. I never thought of that as a defensive weapon before. I always, um, you know, but it, it does make sense for sure. Yeah. We're back with some more of that good indigenous outdoors. I've been talking to Gabe LaMarche about making knives and arrowheads out of stone. Gabe and I met online. I was commenting on some flint napping that I had seen on Facebook. I asked the crafter if he would be willing to teach me some arrowhead making. He said that he would be delighted, but he couldn't since he was in Europe. He told me that his teacher was in Saskatoon though, his name was Gabe LaMarche, and that he would probably sit down with me and teach me some basics. Since Regina is a lot closer to Saskatoon than it is to Europe, Planned to meet Gabe as soon as I got the chance. What you are listening to is our first face-to-face meeting at Mewasin Park in Saskatoon. So far we have learned that Mewasin means it looks good and Saskatchewan means muddy river. If we have gotten any of the words wrong on this podcast, it is not out of disrespect and we welcome feedback. I hope you like it. One of these is what I had. The, the little bit of napping that I had done before was with this. Yeah. And what I have here is a, 
uh, tip of a deer horn uh -huh. that can be used to kind of flake the edges once you've broken off a bigger piece, I'm assuming. Yeah, exactly. Pressure flaking. Or you can even use it to tune and prepare a spot on a larger piece to get struck. Okay. To sort of flatten out an area. I'll give you your chair back. Here. Okay. <laughs> you got a bit of a... Skating right there, eh? Well, that was good experience. I look forward to more of it, you know, for sure. It's... Uh, here I'm trying to set up a spot where I can run a large flake along here, run up that ridge of mass there. Right. And so what I'm doing is I'm using this piece of antler. I just took off a small flake there. I'm going to take off another little one here. And so I'm just kind of isolating this area so that when I do strike here, that force is channeled into this ridge. It doesn't try to fan out too far in this direction. So that's what I'm doing, kind of isolating that area there. Awesome. Yeah. So I, I often work between my legs. Some guys will work like this for some things, but when I'm trying to push off larger flakes, I find it makes more sense to work between your legs where you can use your thighs to help you generate force because your legs are so much stronger than your arms. I've been trying to find it like a good old word for uh, pressure flaking, but I'm really having a hard time um, finding the right word. Yeah. And pressure flaking is the process that you're doing right now. Yeah, exactly. That kind of pressing on it to push off flakes. Right. I've been having a hard time finding the old word for what that would be. Mm -hmm. So that, your the pressure flaking is the kind of um, the alternative to striking? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. for striking, I think that old word would be uh, bakte or paskiteo. Today, like, so a Cree speaker today would understand paskiteo to mean something that throws off sparks. Like, you know, sometimes if you put a piece of sappy wood in a fire, it'll throw off a little sparks. So with that, paskiteo could describe that. But I think originally uh, the word had a, a different connotation. Uh, I was asked to kind of uh, give a little workshop demonstration in an archaeology class got all the folks to sit in a group and we just kind of went around and everybody took a turn knocking off a flake and I would try to give some advice how about you try here or I would avoid hitting that spot and <laughs> it's on its way to be being a point but there's there's uh you know it was clearly being worked by some novices right right <laughs> and we do appreciate you making it easy for us <laughs> Gabe <laughs> do you mind know. if I call you Gabe sure yeah yeah okay. of course So yeah, you can for the hammer, uh, you can use antler, I think that'd be eshgan, eshgan, or bone, oskan, oshgan. Mm -hmm. Moose antler is best, it's, it's more dense, it's harder and heavier. What kind of antler is this? That's from uh, part of an elk. It's like okay. one of a. T it's like one of these off an elk. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. Couple pictures of those so people know what we're talking about. Go. 
I've never seen a mm -hmm. bone used as a striking tool like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, some bones work better than others. There's like um, the often hunters today, you know, when they'll just cut off the angles and leave them because there's not much meat on that. the ankles, like the equivalent of this part on us. Mm -hmm. But uh, in the past, I think people would often use them for other tools. They have on elk and moose and bison, they have these straight sides, so they can be used to make knives, or they have this big bulby end that you can use sort of as a striking tool. And They're full of marrow, so right. people would break them open to get that. Rattles from the hooves. Yeah. Exactly. The whole, use the whole animal. Yes, exactly. But I was watching this thing about medieval Europe, and they were saying that they did that too. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's just, it's kind of a survival, you know, kind of thing, I guess. Yeah. No, waste not, want not, right? Right, yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Had a few sites in Wanaskewin. Um because often, you know, an archaeologist excavated a site, it's like, if you go camping, you don't leave the tent and the pot and the axe and all that shit. You just leave, like, you know, maybe a few granola bar wrappers or something, right? You don't leave much. And so most sites are like that. We just find little traces. Oh, okay. And so, depending on the time period, we might find really, really, really heavily processed bone. Like, where it's, like, every bone that contains even a mouthful of marrow is broken open. And the marrow is extracted, and then the bone itself is often even, we find it, it's like soft and powdery, because it's been boiled to extract every little ounce of grease from the... Every bit of nutrient yeah, from it. exactly. Do you know how to say bone in English? I think it's oskan, oskan. Oskan? Yeah. Oskan, oskan. I could be mixing it there with Cree. I have to say, in my head, they're... Po <laughs> <laughs> right. They're pretty charbled right now. <laughs> well, that's a good thing, though. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so flint napping, like, uh, it's slow. It's not necessarily fast. It can take hours to make uh, one of the good, one of the nicer old, old styles of spear points. That's one thing, um, the, the spear points from like 10 or 11,000 years ago were really, 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 they were large and they were really ornately flaked. They were very carefully done, well beyond anything that could just be described as like utility, right? There's no like just getting her done with a lot of those old style spear points. They really poured a lot of effort and attention and care into them. And then there are periods where, you know, people start focusing more attention on other things. But during that really old period, those old spear points, my God, they're now the term Clovis point comes to mind. Uh, yes. Again, I'm, I'm a, kind of a Jeopardy guy, so I know <laughs> little bits about lots of stuff, you know. I never really specialized, but so yes. what area is that? And from what I understand, they were pretty nice. Yeah, exactly. Clovis are found uh, generally across North America, and there are many different sort of subtypes and styles within Clovis. But one thing that they all have in common is there was a large flake struck upwards from the base that we think helped to assist in hafting. And so it kind of created this flute or this groove on both sides to allow for the, um, 
the shaft to be securely attached. And striking off that flake at the end can be tricksy. It's really easy to snap your whole piece. And so there have been a lot of debates in archaeology about like, why the heck would people go through all that effort of carefully shaping the thing and then right at the very end have this risky... One final make or break <laughs> yeah. stroke that could... Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Now, going back to these uh, kind of, as you described them, highly ornate uh, mm -hmm. um, spear points, mm -hmm. do you feel like those were maybe ceremonial or do you think they would have been used? A hunt can be a ceremony. That's true. So that's how I would phrase it. A hunt can be a ceremony. That it's more than just... It's not just the nine to five. That there, there can be a lot of care and attention invested into a hunt. And In so, fact, it should be yeah, a ceremony, really. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and so, yeah, I would say that, yes, they were used to hunt. But often... Uh, well, with one of the time periods I'm thinking of, archaeologists call it a Scots Bluff. And it's kind of in the neighborhood of around 10,000, maybe 9,500 years ago. And these guys started, like, specializing, hunting many bison at a time. They wouldn't just pl pluck one off. It seemed like this was a large-scale organized hunt. And say, so they might take advantage of, like, an arroyo or a coulee and drive the herd into it and ambush them at the end when they suddenly hit that steep edge. Mm -hmm. And so if you're harvesting a lot of animals at one time, you know, you might only do it once a year. And so there could be all that build-up, all the build-up to Christmas, right? right? Or right. <laughs> So we're looking at highly organized systems of mm -hmm. gathering, you know, sustenance as opposed to kind of just... Yeah, it wasn't just like, oh, I see one! <laughs> yeah, yeah, let's run up and stab it with a yeah, yeah, the, stick. Yeah, yeah, no, there was a, a lot of planning involved. Again, um, also during this earlier period, there tends to be a lot more trade. So during the, the Scots Bluff, so-called Scots Bluff time period here in Saskatchewan, it seems like it's almost exclusively flint from the Knife River flint quarries in North Dakota. That's a long way to carry a rock, that right? Is. So that, that involves a lot of provisioning, right, and planning, and whether whether it's people making the whole trip all the way down, or whether it's down the line middlemen trading the flint up, we're not exactly sure. But even still, that's there's a lot of organization going on there. Ten thousand years ago already. Yeah. Right. right. <laughs> yeah. A heavy thing would be a prized item to a nomadic person, you know, transporting a heavy thing around. Yeah. Or, you know, sometimes you've probably seen those stone hammers, mm -hmm. right? They'll have a groove on them. Yes, yes, please. Uh, <laughs> Gabe, what is your opinion on these? I would love to know that. Where I come from in North Dakota, yes. they are, they're plentiful. They were at one time anyway. Yes. So, and, and I've... I'll uh, let you speak on them, but I've heard different things from actual hammers for pounding bone marrow mm -hmm. to um, horse hobbles. So I, I'm very interested to hear what you think on that. I will say that most of them were made before there were many horses around. I think, well, it's kind of like you can use a wrench to pound a nail, right? right? right. <laughs> so like it, it, it's not necessarily just one thing. I think for the most part they were used for things like busting open bone or pounding in teepee stakes, things that were not warfare oriented. I think Hollywood has created a lot of mythos around violence. A lot of them, to interject, or yeah. that I've seen were too big to really wield unless you're like swinging it on some giant pole or something, you know. Yeah, the reason I even mention that is because I meant to say those were an example of a tool that would often, it would be made, and it could be made in an hour, 
and then they would be left. You wouldn't necessarily drag this with you throughout your entire seasonal round. Mm -hmm. You might leave it near your summer camp where you're going to come back to pick berries next year. Mm -hmm. That sort of thing. I think, I think for the most part, it was a pounding tool. Pogamogan. Yeah. Pogamogan. Pounding tool. Yeah. Now, and, you or know, it, that could also be a club, right? If push comes to shove. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, right, yeah, it could be yeah, a striking object. Yeah. Um, they are really common as well throughout Saskatchewan. They're common across the plains, across the northern plains especially. Yeah. And now knowing what you said about the how um, thoroughly crushed the bones were for nutrients, you know, I can see it now. Mm -hmm. You wouldn't want to leave, you know, if you made one, of course you wouldn't want to drag it all around. So you'd leave it maybe next to a flat rock mm -hmm. or another set of rocks you could pound mm -hmm. with. Yeah, and often people would, you know, if you find a good berry patch or if you have a really successful hunt using the landscape and it just all works out perfect, you're going to do that again in a couple of years. Yeah. After, right. like, the smell, it, it might smell like blood for a while, so you might not be able to drive a herd back into that next mm. year. But after that, the herd sort of loses its panic again, the, the smell fades, you might be able to set up another stellar hunt and take a massive amount of bison again. Yeah. So, you, yeah, I never thought about the length of time to wait between, you know, hunting spots. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Often hunters today, it's a little bit more solitary. Like, sometimes, you know, their, their communities will have, like, the super hunters that will go out. A group of hunters might go out and take, like, 120 goose and stock everybody's freezer with a goose. And, you know, sometimes right. there will be that. But most hunters, for the most part, today are more solitary. And I don't think it was so much that case in the past. I think it was more of a community-oriented mm -hmm. thing. And so with that comes larger scale. People were taking more animals at any one time. And mm -hmm. right, I'm just speed up on this a little bit. Try to get something pointy towards the end of it. Okay. Well, you don't necessarily have to complete a project. I'm <laughs> happy to be here seeing this stuff in action. Mm. Yeah, you know, who knows where the metal, metallurgy, am I using the word correctly, metal work would have gone. Mm. But uh, I am thoroughly appreciating Stone Age technology these days. Mm -hmm. So for the copper, during the earlier periods, what archaeologists call the old copper complex, from around 6,000 years ago until around um, maybe about two and a half thousand years ago, there was a... People would use the copper to make tools. And so in northern Saskatchewan even, there was a, you know, there have been copper spear points found in Saskatchewan that are thousands of years old. Uh, I know of one that was really? found near Pine House, Saskatchewan by, by a professional archaeologist. He's a professor. Like, this wasn't just like some, like, loony guy. I found me a copper! <laughs> <laughs> a well-accredited, well-respected archaeologist. This copper point near Pine House, Saskatchewan. It probably came from Lake Superior, but it's possible it came from further north. There were even some trace amounts of copper that were mined further north. Like, you, know, you know, like Yellowknife. The reason it's called Yellowknife is because the people in that area had some copper. Really? Yellowknife. Okay. Yeah. That's funny, you know, that that's, that's the first time hearing about this. Sure. You know, I, I just considered that uh, metalwork wasn't really... Uh... Being used as tools further south, it did 
fade out. It became more used for jewelry, bangles, earrings. It became more about, you know, bling rather than necessarily the... Yeah, yeah weaponry. <laughs> yeah. It hadn't been weaponized yet. Well, no, Give I mean... humanity long enough to weaponize <laughs> anything. Well, what I meant was, like, so during the earlier period, around 6,000 to 3,000 years ago, copper in that neck of the woods was used more for spear points and, and tools. But then around 2,000 years ago, it changed, and people started using it more for for the jewelry then. So it went the other way or whatever. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, if you have any other questions, by all means, ask, or I can just keep rambling. Um. I believe I have seen mortar and pestle. Yes. Before on the plains. Mm-hmm. I feel like that would have been a take-along item, depending on how, uh, like, big they were. Or what? What are your thoughts on that? Well, often mortar and pestles were related to processing of plants, and the plants don't move very fast. Right. right. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, more recently, there's been a lot of research into, of course, corn. Corn, right? Okay. Uh, in Nishnabim, when we say uh, mandamin. 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 Yeah. Corn. It means like the wondrous seed. Wondrous seed. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah, and so there's there's always debates in archaeology about well, when the heck did this start? Like when did this horticulture and agriculture start to come in? And so especially with things like mortar and pestles, processing that corn into flour. So there there are there are questions around that. When did that start? Well, in layman's terms again, I've forgotten what yeah. the difference between horticulture and agriculture <sighs> is. Is horticulture just kind of controlling populations of plants or some may say it's a scale of organization. I would say that it's it's a very blurry mix. So in the east, where I grew up, the Iroquois, especially the uh, Haudenosaunee, they would uh, burn an area and set up these large, large gardens, and they would construct a lot like long houses in the area and set up these villages. And then these villages would have like twenty a twenty year, fifteen twenty year lifespan. And so after about fifteen twenty years, corn is quite it's quite hard on the soil. And so it would sort of deplete a lot of the resources in the area. And then they would just, they would let it get overgrown. They would leave that area. They'd go set up a new village somewhere else. And so these would be moved around. And so that would be horticulture, where it's not like, this is my pappy's field. And, right? <laughs> right, right, yeah. Okay. So it would be more, more flexible. A um, controlled yeah. moving of, of crops. Kind of thing. Exactly. Huh. That's how I think of it. But... Um, I have to say, I'm, I don't know as much about how the Siouan folks would, would do it. I, I'm really hesitant to try to speak too much about uh, Siouan cultural practices, because I... That's, that's <laughs> yeah. Now, where did you learn your um, arrowhead making, your flint knife? Oh, that's, that's an interesting question. Okay, uh, the quick answer is slowly. Uh, when I was... I remember when I was a little kid, I asked my elders to teach me, and they just like looked at me like I was crazy and said very slowly, like I might not understand, we don't need to do that anymore. Oh, <laughs> that's too bad. But, uh, but I still wanted to learn, and so I just kind of kept at it and was like slowly breaking rocks. I was lucky to live in an area where there was some okay chert I had access to. Chert? Yeah, it's kind of like a flint. It's like a, a medium-grade flint. So you're self-taught? 
for the most well yes and no yes god my mouth is getting cold it's hard to pronounce words okay yes and no yeah so when i was about 12 there was an excavation on an island that used to be part of our reserve Bosley island and there was some archaeologists there doing excavation and i found it really curious and one of the archaeologists there was an Italian guy, Cesare, Cesare. And so Cesare, in the patch, he was excavating. Like, he was digging down. For the most part, it was like this it was old historic cabin, you know, where some of our ancestors lived in the early 1800s. When, when the archaeologists were digging down, as they got underneath the cabin and they're digging deeper and deeper, older and further back in time, Cesare found what he, you know, he called it flint napping workshop. And so just like this, right, this scatter of flakes, as he was digging down, he basically found exactly this, and it was several thousand years old, and it just totally, it really captivated me. It's that long ago somebody was doing something basically like what... Exactly, exactly this, yeah. It's so fascinating when you can connect like that. Sorry to interject. But no, yeah, for layers, like going through a, like a, a log cabin, I, I have an idea in my head of what a log cabin was, and I knew what a nail was, and I knew what, you know, a broken teacup was, but when they got under that, and it was just like these weird flint chips i didn't really know what that was and it really kind of made me curious like what the heck is going on there what what is that and so i started kind of chipping stone and trying to figure it out and at first i had a lot of misunderstandings these childlike misunderstandings so i realized sometimes like if i start out i thought you had to start a flake really slowly and build up force and so i'd start out like this and slowly building up force what I realized now I was doing is I was just abrading the platform. But I didn't I didn't understand that at the time. I had this weird childlike understanding as I was trying to make sense of the physics of it. And then eventually when I was in my late teens, I came across a book by an archaeologist where he actually outlined some of the... Like when I was talking about that cone of force of the broken window and how to actually abrade and set up a spot to be struck... It was like the light bulb came on in my head, and I realized, like, all oh, these childlike misunderstandings I had about it. And so you were able to connect through science mm-hmm. into the ancient technology, really, mm-hmm. through modern science. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. Yeah. another good serving of indigenous outdoors for you. We have been talking to respected archaeologist and flint napper Gabriel LaMarche. Gabe and I have been jamming about beautifully ornate spear points and arrowhead physics. We touched on ancient copper mining, stone quarries, and agriculture. I feel like I could do this all day and night since Gabriel is so knowledgeable and I have so many questions. I was stunned to learn that a copper spear point was found near Pinehouse, Saskatchewan and the meaning of the name Yellowknife. We have learned many words in Anishinaabe and Cree, including bone or Oshkan. Did you know that the city of Regina, Saskatchewan was once known as Oshkana, a pile of bones? Let's sit down and enjoy some more of Gabe's wisdom, shall we? Thanks for taking the time to chill with us.
given a lot of what archaeologists know today, it comes from indigenous folks. So in a lot of areas, the, the stone tool working traditions, those crafting traditions had kind of faded. They were still sort of preserved maybe in one degree or another, but for the most part, they faded. There was a man who lived in, in California. He was an indigenous man, a Yahi man. His family ended up running up into the mountains because you know the settlers were basically having a genocide on the indigenous people there. His family ran up into the mountains to try to get away from that. And they lived up there for a long time and eventually everybody else in his family died off and it was just him alone. And so he went down. I sometimes think, you know, maybe he was just trying to like surrender and he thought he'd kind of die and had given up. So he went down and it was kind of found in a barn somewhere, kind of near a settler village. And this is early 1900s early, early 1900s, 1910 in that neck of the woods, maybe 19, 1908, somewhere in there. The genocide had sort of faded. There was still a lot of terrible racism. Had he come down in the 1880s, he might have just been shot on sight. He came down at a time where finally the barbarism of the settlers was fading. He was kind of at first treated like a curiosity and he was taken to University of California there. And the anthropologists there were totally fascinated with him. And so they made a lot of recordings. So a, a lot of what we know of flint napping today can be traced back to what Ishii taught anthropologists there. When I was using this, this long, we call this an Ishii stick. It's named after that man. Ishii stick. Yeah. Now there is a book, I understand, <laughs> right? I think, is it called The Story of Ishii? Or? It could be. I yeah. think there's been several written about him. Right, right, right. Well. He was kind of like this window into this tradition that had almost been eradicated by colonialism. He was like this last little trace of it where he still practiced flint napping with the full sophistication of the ancestors from 800 years ago. Uh -huh. Wow. And so, I mean, his story... A living relic almost comes down from the mountain. Yeah. You know, and luckily people were on top of it enough to preserve some exactly. of his knowledge. Yeah, and he, uh, oh yeah, yep, 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 yep. Somewhere. This leather thing huh. is for holding the, onto your palm to... Yeah, so I can push off flakes and not drive them into my palm itself. I do have some already stuck in there, because sometimes they wear <laughs> through and it'll poke in there. But yeah, so this gives kind of space for a flake to release cleanly underneath, while still supporting... So Ishii's story, like, do you know the story about his name? Uh, I, I read a book about him a mm. few years ago, and it was a fascinating book. I recommend it to anybody if they get the chance. It's, a, it's an interesting story. Mm -hmm. But how he got his name it has escaped me, if I did ever know. So it was a custom of his people that you're never supposed to introduce yourself. You're always supposed to have someone else introduce you, a friend or an acquaintance introduce you. He said, everyone who knows my name is dead. And so he was just Ishi, just a man. That's all that word means in, in his, like, his language. Okay. Yeah. So when they kind of demanded him to describe himself, <laughs> yeah. he was like, man? You know, Sometimes, you know, I wonder, like, what are all the other things that he was forbidden to share by taboo, right? All those un other mysteries, too. Right, <laughs> right, yeah. yeah. Well, just like the learned kind of... Um, you know, uh, indigenous mm. unlearning, if you will, that mm -hmm. taught you that, you know, we don't need to do that anymore. Those are the old ways that, mm -hmm. you know, uh, no longer have use to us kind mm -hmm. of idea that was that was taught, you know. And mm -hmm. I feel like um, what you're doing is a very spiritual thing. I, for me, it's really meditative. Like, 
to really realize that it's not random thrashing and bashing, that it's physics and it's careful thinking and planning. It's like chess. You know, if you're playing good high-level chess, you're not just doing one move at a time. You have like grand strategy and you're planning several moves in advance. It's like that, but in three dimensions. And so it's, I thought that was a wolf. (laughs) It's like, that's weird. (laughs) (laughs) So I find it really um, quite enjoyable. And I, I suspect that people in the past felt that way too, because they didn't just tie a sharp flake on the end of a stick. Right. They poured a lot of care and attention into it. Do you feel this would have been something that uh, every hunter, every warrior would have learned to do on their own, or would there have been someone that specialized in it? Yeah, I can give you an archaeological example. So there is, it's not from here, the Topper site in North Carolina. They found this, so this site, it was like this large workshop where, you know, there's just a scatter of flakes all around, and the archaeologists mapped in the location of every single flake. So they like recorded the location of every single flake so that they could kind of organize and reconstruct the site on paper or on computer. And when they did that, they ended up finding that there was actually, they could see it was a group of people that were working together. And it seemed for the most part, everybody was working on their own piece. But every so often, somebody from over there would encounter a tricky flake that they were having trouble with and they would pass it off to this one guy. And so it seemed like that this one guy handled a few tricky spots for other people. So it seemed like there was like a master and a bunch of learners. Okay. Yeah, it does involve a lot of personal practice where you just have to put in the hours yourself. But also having good instruction really makes a world of difference. It took me fucking years to even figure out like how to do something this. It it would have taken me, it took me years to figure out how to do this. And then now I can in like first time introduction i can help people quickly make this because i already kind of have an understanding of it. if you're just trying to get into it yourself like just goldilocks where you're screwing up every which way just trying to find the one way that actually works it's brutally hard but if you do have some advice from other experienced people it makes a world of difference world of difference that paints a cool picture of you know the flint nappers learning and then taking their problems to kind of the master napper and then just to take off that like yeah. that one tricky flake that they couldn't quite get right yeah and, and maybe that individual couldn't go out on the hunt mm. you know but mm. he had mastered the art of flint napping uh, another analogy i heard one time i think was from a central american guy i think he was from oaxaca he was he was like a traditional spiritual guy from way down south way down south central america and I think he was describing that um, something about like when they used to hunt monkeys, that hunting monkeys was considered like, like a special sort of ceremonial hunt. And I think they had this practice where all the hunters each had their own like particular style of arrow. But when the hunt came, every hunter would give one of his arrows to somebody else so that everybody, every hunter had a mix of arrows in their quiver so that no one person could claim the kill. He didn't shoot it with his own arrow. It was like this distributed thing. I like that. I like that <laughs> concept. And that kind of goes back to the way I feel group hunting. Mm. I, I look at it as a team effort. Exactly. Know? I've never really been the kind of to sort out which one I shot and which one, you know. Exactly. Divvy it up and take it home. But, wow. Yeah. So there's, there's so much uh, wrapped up in just that little story, you know, the ceremony to hunt the primate uh. which could probably have been viewed as close to us you know which would have mm-hmm. taken a special mm-hmm. ceremony to hunt much like an eagle hunt or, or mm-hmm. something mm-hmm. along those lines yeah. mm-hmm. 
yeah, it wasn't just one person. Like, it was shared on every level, right? It wasn't just the meat that was shared. Even the claim of the kill was kind of right. shared and distributed. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, that's the main point of that. Mm-hmm. Now, another thing I've noticed, and I've wondered this yeah. often. Um, I've noticed some of your arrowheads yes. that you've shared online um, have kind of ridges to them and aren't smooth. Oh, so they yeah, look like yeah. they're made to kind of burrow in and not come out. The serrations, yeah. Serrations, yes. When it comes to chipping the edge, you actually, with flint, you can't have a perfectly straight edge and have it very sharp. But if you carefully space out the flakes so that on the margins of the fractures, yeah, where you actually get like these margins of fracture, because it's the edge, like so I struck here, but that part's blunt, but it's at the sides of it where the tear actually occurs that I'm not pressing. That's where it's sharpest. And so you can almost get a micro version. Can I get you to do that one? Sure. So this is where I struck on this flake right here. And this part isn't sharp. I had to make it blunt to absorb that force. But on the sides of it where I didn't really touch it, where the tear itself just occurred, that's where it's sharp. And so maybe I'll even demonstrate the sharpness of this. So this is, you know, leather that's even probably thicker than the stuff we would use for work gloves, right? Wow, look at that. So it is as sharp as any knife, Absolutely. but at the sides there where you don't touch it. And so you can even have sort of a micro version of that by creating these tiny little serrades where, yes, you push at one spot, but it's at the, sort of the edges of that fracture where you have the, the sharpness. So, and kind of further to that, huh. you were talking about like things, notches like this along the edge of the head itself? Yeah. Okay, okay. Maybe I'll try to demonstrate. So the opposite of this. Uh, so here I'm making it blunt so that I can push off flakes. So here I'm making it blunt so that I can push off flakes. No, no, it's okay. But on, the, on that blunted area now, I kind of got flipped around here. Where I'm okay. I made that edge all quite blunt, but now I will tear off some flakes, and so in that flake I tore off. I just pushed right in the middle, right in the middle there. But it's on the sides of that where the fracture actually occurred that it's quite sharp, and so if I spread out my flakes. Again, another there. And so... Almost a series of sharp points making a uniform, not quite uniform, but an yeah, edge. Exactly. Oh. Okay. And so by spreading out those flakes... Oh, shoot. Uh, that flake was a little thin there, but that's where you can start getting this real keenness to, to get really particularly sharp flakes that will uh, do quite a bit of damage. Yeah. Yeah, certain certain cultures at different time periods would do that more or less than others. There was like, uh, in your opinion, would it be possible to say kill a deer mm -hmm. with a properly made arrowhead, take it out and reuse it? Oh yeah, yeah. A lot of the points we find, they've been resharpened and resharpened on the little stubs, okay. and so you can kind of even gauge like somebody's access to good material. If they don't have a lot of raw material around or on hand, oftentimes they'll resharpen. So sometimes. Uh, the points in this 
neck of the woods they didn't have these double notches but sometimes you'll find ones that are just resharpened down to like little stubs like this right yeah they they were reused but often they would have to be resharpened and in the resharpening they get smaller that makes sense as long as you still have that sharp point on the end of your mm -hmm. I was gifted an obsidian arrowhead and I oh, nice. made the choice to make it into a necklace. Huh? I do not recommend that. <laughs> no, They're the sharpest substance on earth. That's right. You gotta blunt them. <laughs> you gotta blunt the, end. blunt the edges if you're gonna do that one. Yeah. 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 I, sometimes I've helped make like um, bolo ties. That's one that you know sometimes oh. is a good a good seller. But it uh, yeah, you have to abrade all the edges. Right. Right. Yeah. Do you know how to say arrow in Nishinaabe? Yeah, so you can say bakwe. Bakwe. Uh, or I, I think there's also a different word for an arrow made only of wood. Bigok. Uh, Bigok. Or bigwak, depending on the dialect. Yeah. And the word for bow would be mittigwapi. Uh, mittigwap or mittigwapi, depending on dialect and I think it literally like mitig or in Cree be mystic it just means wood and the api part means string so it basically is just like wood and string okay <laughs> how did you say that again mittigwapi or mitig mittigwap depending on dialect there but yeah and how about buffalo in uh, Nishnape like our word uh, is bijiki 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 and um, I think the Cree cognate of that word, it literally means like a beast or a creature. You know, the Cree word, mustos, uh, eh? Yeah. Pujiki um, could, all, like mustos, it could also mean cow, depending on how it's used. And so some people might say like, uh, like mushkode bujiki, to say like plains, that plains bison, mushkode bujiki. Well, then I just figured out what muscadet means. <laughs> yeah. Well, you don't have to stay out here all day by any means. I started this one. I'm going to try to push it towards something of a finish point. It doesn't have to... Whatever you're comfortable with. Okay. Just, I'll stay as long as you want. Or... Okay. I'll try to speed it up, though. There we go. All right. I don't mind being a little cold for okay. fascinating stuff that I want to learn, you know? Okay. Cree and Nishnabe one are so close. Like, um, have you been up to, like, Waskasu? Wawaskasu? Yes, I have once. So that word, you know, it's like the old word for elk. And so our word for deer is Wawashkesh. Wawashkesh. And it's sort of, again, another cognate. It's related to that word. Wawaskesu, wawaskeshi. Wawaskeshi, Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That must have been a... Uh, must be interesting for a language speaker to come that far away, this far away, and it, it, see those differences, you know, especially from an archaeological perspective. I, <laughs> yeah, it's both disorienting and fascinating. Right. You know how, like, you know, often, you know, you, 
you meet an EG and you're like, hey, who are you? Where are you from? Right? You're trying to figure out, like, how are you related? Are you my cousin? And... <laughs> so sometimes I joke, like, uh, that I got into archaeology because I had to figure out how I was related to these people here. <laughs> <laughs> right. You had to have an answer for that one. Yeah. yeah. How are we cousins? <laughs> that's, that's the first question is where are you from? And yeah. <laughs> I just recently learned that, that you know, coming from... Uh, indigenous perspective that's exactly what you talked about you know because mm -hmm. i always struggled with that one too you know because i've moved a lot and mm -hmm. where you're from but my father's from muscochese alberta so ah okay that's yeah that's where i'm from mm. they say that uh actually relating to arrowheads mm -hmm. um my cousin wants to go look for arrowheads along the Battle River. He claims okay. to know a spot where a battle took place between um, Blackfoot and Cree. Mm -hmm. In fact, I think that's how the river got its name. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's another one. From my perspective, a lot of the tensions, a lot of the fierce tensions between our nations, kind of, in my view, they emerged after contact. But there was tensions before, but I think... The fur traders, the colonists, they intentionally tried to play us against each other and play us off each other in that sort of divide and conquer shit. I think the battles were most fierce after contact and often in those times, firearms were also involved. So, so whereas before you might have had, say, border, skirm border hunting ground skirmishes to some degree, maybe raiding parties, that type of thing but not the all-out kind of warfare. Well, even, you know, the idea of counting coup, right? Right, right. Where yeah. I'm not necessarily going to kill you. I'm just going to touch you with my fucking stick. And just to show you, like, I could have got you. I got you, man. Very badass. <laughs> yeah. Very badass concept, for sure. Right? You have to live with that now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and all your buddies are going to know it, too. Exactly. Yeah. So I think the conflict, I think, was a little bit different in the traditional context, but then there was certainly competition got a lot more fierce when the Europeans and firearms got involved and capitalism, capitalistic <laughs> ideas, yeah. you know, for sure. Yeah. Would there have been a difference between arrowheads made for battle and for hunting? Was there any type of distinction there? I would say no in this area. There may be some cases down, way down south, maybe Arizona, where there may be there's a lingering argument about maybe some of these styles relate more to warfare and they weren't for hunting. But in this area, no. Right. So in my mind, an arrowhead that doesn't come out, you know, might be a little bit better to use in a war situation. Or worse, I don't know. Because by pulling them out, then you'll I hope to never find out. Let's yeah. I have seen some accounts. So some, like the American Civil War, some of those doctors that wrote about in that time period, they had also been involved in some of sort of the, you know, they called them the Indian Wars, when right. they, those Americans pushed out up into the northern plains and were kind of, you know, going to war against folks like the Cheyenne. And, and so those docs would describe the intense lethality if someone was struck in the torso with an arrow, that their odds of dying were worse than if, you know, somebody was shot in the torso. Just because the risk of infection is greater like the point goes in and it's jaggedy and if it hits a bone it'll shatter on the inside of you or it could shatter and just leave these shards inside of you right and it's even it's held into the shaft with hide glue 
and sinews, right? There's like, we're already gonna we're gonna jam some bits of old deer into you. <laughs> right? Right, yeah. It could be pretty, pretty, pretty dangerous. I think. Well, yeah, I can imagine. I know, like a laceration from obsidian takes a while to to heal. You know? Yeah, it it can. Yeah. Hmm. So, and then the idea, hmm. as I learned it, of. Uh, I'm trying to think of chest plate. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So is that, and in my mind, it's going to re kind of repel an arrow, mm -hmm. you know, if the arrowhead is vertical, mm -hmm. but maybe a little less if it's horizontal. Mm -hmm. So it give you kind of a 50-50 chance or so of, Yeah. Is, is that, what is your understanding on those? I wouldn't argue with what you just said there. I also think that today our breastplates are more stylized. Whereas I think in the past, they probably, it wouldn't have been such a narrow little bead. I think in the past, it probably would have been quite a bit wider, but yeah. Maybe like a rib or something. Yeah, Maybe exactly. An extra, an extra rib cage. Extra <laughs> rib cage, yeah, right. Nothing wrong with that. Yeah. I have not seen many artifacts of that, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that I, I know that that was the case, but that would be my suspicion mm -hmm. that, yeah. Welcome back to Indigenous Outdoors. I am your humble narrator, Eric, standing on the road, and with me today is knowledge keeper Gabe LaMarche. We have been discussing the story of Yahi legend Ishi. Ishi was the last of his people and he came down from the California mountain for survival, but also managed to teach us most of what we know about arrowhead making today. Gabriel compares flint napping to a game of 3D chess, complete with master strategies. We learn about the discovery of an ancient arrowhead making site in North Carolina where students were taught by a master. What an interesting picture that paints in the imagination. We are told about South American monkey hunts and the arrows that are used. And finally, we learn why Gabe is so interested in learning his language. Come along with us for the last bit of this interview with Gabe Lamont. You will not be disappointed. Talk to you again soon. interesting weapon it's kind of like a paddle with Thumb. arrowheads lined along the sides you probably know yeah the Mahawidal or Mahawidal and so those in Central America they had a specialized manufacturing system for making flakes like this that these blades that are mostly parallel sided and they're quite thin Aztecs would produce these sort of on a mass scale like industrial level production thousands of these blades being produced and so these could be hafted into the sides of that Makawidal. And it gives you this razor sharp keen edge. Like you saw how sharp that was. Yeah. And then, you know, you can use it and then it you hit some dude with it, the blade shatters, you can take it out and replace it again. And you have an edged weapon. Yeah. And it was, uh, yeah, as sharp as any. Huh. I've also seen evidence of west coast mm -hmm. paddles having a similar design on them so that i thought that was really neat when i first saw that that the concept of you know the paddle also being a weapon and if needed 
yeah, eh? yeah, that bladed structure, yeah, yeah, the west coast is really something, I did a little bit of archaeological work out there, and it just, yeah, those folks out there, they had a different concept of territory, I think, they didn't have to move around, the salmon come to them, you just set up at the mouth of the river, you wait till spring, <laughs> and those salmon are coming to you, right. and so they really got really hunkered down and really territorial in a way that across most of Canada is like really weird, where like even particular fishing spots like would be inherited through families. That's what I understand. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and then probably accessibility to water only to some of those areas too. You know, it's hard mm. to say if you can walk through the mountains. And... Yeah, I, I think there were some overland mountain passes, but like. Um, for the different Salish nations, it's almost like, um, say, you know, Squamish is here, and then just above them, you have the Shishosh people. And the, the difference between them is like a drainage system. It's like the, the top of the mountain is sort of the thing that creates the border between them. And then wherever the water flows down from either side of that, that's like that Squamish territory, and this is Shishosh territory. Oh, okay. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, maybe, I don't, I don't know, I... If there's any Salish person out there that wants to tell me I'm yeah, wrong on that, yeah, by all yeah, means. We are going from layman's terms, definitely. Uh, yeah. From a uh, uh, Cree Ojibwe perspective. Yeah, we exactly. Are not experts on other nations. They are all diverse and unique. <laughs> yeah. For sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I kind of find it interesting how some of the old european last names relate back to arrowhead making you know fletcher oh yeah um, bowman you know yes different exactly yeah i mean those guys until you know it was practically just a couple generations before columbus came over that they they were they were still medieval right yeah. still swinging swords and shooting arrows at each other yeah, yeah absolutely <laughs> before gunpowder yeah that wasn't that far back there. Yeah. Do you have experience with bow making as well? Or? A little bit, um, but not so much that I'd want to give anybody much advice. I, I feel like I don't have enough experience to, yeah, I wouldn't consider myself knowledgeable on them, but I have some experience with them. That's about where I'm at with bows. Mm -hmm. I was able to carve a decent one out of um, juniper. Oh, nice. Okay. But I never did get to the point where I send you back it. Uh. But my friend did send you back his, and I was a part of that process. So mm. I know a little more than somebody who's never been around for it, I guess mm -hmm. you could say, you know. Even still. Yeah, juniper is an interesting one. Like, uh, that was another thing. When I moved out here, a lot of the plants are very different. How would you say juniper? Do you know how to say juniper? Or uh, kind of plant? Not juniper. I don't know how to say juniper. But like back east, we have a lot. We have a lot of sugar maple back east. Anatic, anatic. Anatic sugar maple. Yeah, anatic. Yeah, <laughs> where, where, where I come from, juniper is like this weird little short gnarly thing, and for the most part, it is out here too. But yeah, where it, the heck did you get juniper big enough for? I had to scour a mountain and a half, basically. <laughs> you know, I did a lot of hiking to to find. You know, like you say. Uh, long enough straight piece of juniper yeah. and I couldn't find any so I gave up and then on the drive on the gravel road on the way home I saw one right practically by the ditch so we left some tobacco and I got it and uh, used a spoke shave to start with and then uh, just switched over to a big kind of skinning knife that I had and used that as a draw knife. That's awesome. Yeah yeah it was, it was a lot of fun thank you. Where about was this mountain? Where I got the bow from was near Savannah, British Columbia, mm. a reserve called um, 
but it uh, shoe swap people. Mm -hmm. yeah, mm -hmm. really, really beautiful out there. Mm -hmm. You know, the closest thing I've kind of come to mm -hmm. as far as like your uh, archaeological findings and being able to find something that was used possibly thousands of years ago by ancestors, mm -hmm. found, um, they're known as a kukuli out there. It's an earth lodge. Mm -hmm. I've heard them also called a chiston. I think in Shushwap, mm. I, I could be wrong on mm -hmm. this, but um, it's semi-subterranean uh, kind of earth dwelling with, you know, the logs around the top, and mm -hmm. uh, when we built that... Uh, my built friend, it? Oh, cool. well, the site was already there. The site, they believe, is between 2,500 and 5,000 years old oh, wow. of the pits. Yeah. So basically what my friend did was dug one out and rebuilt it. Oh, wow. Read it? Okay. Yeah, yeah, rebuilt <laughs> it with... Um, yeah. But we rebuilt it, and then we used that as a base to rebuild a much bigger one that we mm. found. And um, when I was digging my fire pit in the middle of the bigger one, I found the ashes of whoever cooked there before. And that was a very spiritual, very, like, you know, I don't know how to describe that moment. Very just stellar. Yeah, exactly. The connection there, eh? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. To something that basic as, you know... Cooking or, or making an arrow. Yeah, that's one thing that like most archaeologists, you know, they they're from settler or even newcomer stock. They have a in one way it's kind of like they they have a respectful distance, and so most archaeologists would see that as you are damaging the site, right? But for indigenous people, we're like, no, 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 that's that's the purpose of that site, right? That's the way it's meant to be used, right? Right. And so there there are a lot of these tensions all the time. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I, I really love that you did that right at the site where there was one. Where That's there was amazing. already one. It's, it's oh very God. awesome. To that, it had been dug mm -hmm. before. We found, um, what would you call it, like a sifter box? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So the archaeologists left evidence of their own site, <laughs> eh? <laughs> yeah, we found evidence of archaeology, yeah. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> That's awesome that you guys rebuilt it right where it was. I love that. Yeah. yeah, I'm not sure if it still stands or not. I'd like to get out there and canoe out there again. That uh, Those um, Kakuli spots are near um, Enderby. Mm. Pit yeah. houses, eh? Like the... Yeah. I love that. Yeah. I'd even love to see pictures of that. I've daydreamed about making one of those things for so long. They're so amazing. I happen to have. I would pictures. love to see that, man. <laughs> Kind of like, yeah, yeah, okay. go ahead. There should be a bunch. And then, <coughs> another thing that happened when we were doing that mm -hmm. is we uh, we dug out all the stuff, all the debris from the inside of the pit to get down to the, to the earth, mm -hmm. you know, layers and layers of you know exactly what I'm talking about <laughs> leaves, and I can't remember the technical term for it. But so we got down there and we scooped it all to the edges of the, of the pit, mm -hmm. and then uh, later that night. Mike gets up to go take a piss and he's like, Eric, you got to come see this. And I'm like, 
<laughs> okay, so I go out and all along the edges of that Kukuli pit was what I now know is Firefox bioluminescent root oh, wow. was surrounding the whole thing. So it looked like somebody laid thousands and thousands of glow sticks all wow. around this pit that we built. That's and amazing. It was the most surreal thing in my lifetime, for sure. Oh my God. Yeah. That's really cool. I, f I felt that had to have been a message. Yeah. Goddamn. And then uh, the fire, the way I learned that it's called Firefox is from the Firefox series of books. Okay. Which are you familiar uh, it's with? It's not ringing any loud bells in my head. Okay. It's um, basically uh, a teacher in Ozark country mm -hmm. um, decided to um, have his students uh, do what we're doing here and record and mm -hmm. videotape. Um, you know their ancestors and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, kind of more traditional settler mm. type stuff, you know. Mm -hmm. Cool Ozarky things. And so, anyways, he compiled it all in this book series that I was able to pick up. Mm. Firefox. Yeah. I I'd never heard of that actually. That is what uh, I was always wondering, and I kept a piece of it and everything, and I showed it to people, and I was always wondering what it was. And then in the first chapter of that, or the first paragraph of that book, they described the Firefox as bioluminescent root. And I was like, That's what it was. Fox fire? It could be Fox fire. Okay, even still. Yeah. Man, that that would be quite the experience. Holy shit. Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> what was in that soup you made for supper, Mike? <laughs> yeah. So and in your mind, what would have been the best... Uh, wood for arrow shafts around here around here um i would say it depends so um people have like red osier or some people call it dogwood it really takes well to steam bending and so if you have a piece that's not quite straight but you just want to straighten it a little they're easy to straighten another one that is not so easy to straighten but can be is um, wild rose sometimes you can find patches of wild rose the ones in the middle grow nice and straight and tall trying to reach up for the light and sometimes i think there's also um like i almost want to say it's like some of the old spirituality of like like makes like where wild rose it's like aggressive like if you touch it right all the spines on the shaft it can mess you up already right and so sometimes i think maybe that was kind of valued there's also saskatoon if you find little shoots of saskatoon they tend to send up suckers so little like roots will grow for the main tree and it'll send up another little sucker straight up. Those ones are good. I think probably somebody over here. This has opposing branches. So this might be, um, and it has a pithy core. This is probably Manitoba maple. This can also work. Manitoba maple. Cool. One of the reasons I ask is because I've tried making some arrows out of willow. Oh yeah. It didn't seem to work that well. It's kind of too soft. And I was at a museum in Montana, and they had a, um, a bow and a quiver set, and mm -hmm. they said that it was made of willow, but I couldn't tell by looking at it. But yeah. I was thinking maybe if that was all that was around. Sometimes people will also, like that red osier dogwood, sometimes people will call that red willow. Oh, okay. Right? It's not actually... It's not that right there. Yeah, that, exactly, that, that stuff okay. right there. Okay. So sometimes people will call that red willow. It's not actually a willow. But it might get labeled as a willow at a museum. Really? I don't know. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, because that's what, uh, you know, in my mind, what those arrows were. Yeah. Yeah, it takes well. The steam bending can be quite soft. It's not as durable. I'm going to go get a picture of those while I sure. remember. Got snowshoers and skiers and everything. <laughs> yeah. 
bringing it to the park. That's another one where, like the, the Korean Ojibwe words are similar, and so I've always mixing up which is which. For snowshoe. <laughs> yeah. Okay. What comes to mind? Uh, Assam, Assam, but I think that's Cree. Assam. Assam. Yeah. Asamak might be the plural, or Asama, depending if, if the person considers them animate or not. Sometimes there's variation in that from community to community. Right. I find there to be so many uh, ways of knowing, so many belief systems tied into the languages. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm not fluent, but a uh, mm-hmm. story I read recently, the lady was talking about how she had requested somebody hand her a bottle of water and she referred it to it as her water mm-hmm. and was corrected immediately that the natural resources can't be referred to in the possessive form, mm-hmm. right? So it had to be the water or our water. Or, mm-hmm. And you know, so without a language concept evolved around ownership of natural resources, you know, mm-hmm. to, um, I feel like to adapt as much as we have in this short a time is pretty incredible. Yeah. Even, um, like the word for uh, a gift, bogejigan, 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 can, in, in one sense, it means like a thing I'm setting down. And so it, like, I'm done with it. Right, it's yours now. I'm done. That sort of. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not holding it anymore. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's your turn with it, sort of thing. Yeah. So. Am I getting this right? This is what you would. Right now, I'm kind of caught between. Do I want to finish it as a point or leave it as a knife? Right. A a knife would be faster, and my hands are getting cold, so I'll probably just put the finishing touch on it. Well, you know, you brought a point for us (laughs) to look at. That's another thing that I've heard of is that um, it just mirrors back to what you were talking about in the literature about the pictures of brutality that are painted, you know, mm-hmm. and where it, the territorial disputes and things might have been settled other ways. Well, especially, you know, like most of us are pretty mixed today. Even if you find people that are like, I, you know, I'm pure blood. So it's like, yeah, but my grandpa was Cheyenne and my mom is Blackfoot. And, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so there was a lot more, um, a lot more mixing, right? I, I think that mixing goes all the way back. Even there, you know, there's a word, the folks around the Battlefords are sometimes called like Nehiao Pwat, where they're acknowledging that they're, that they're Cree, Nehiao, but they also have Pwat. They're a little, there's some Siouan in there too. And so they're, they're mixed. And often archaeologists, you know, in that European tradition where there are these, these hard borders are you f- between, like, you know, England and right, France and yeah. Spain and Portugal, and, right? Yeah, right. Cree, Blackfoot. Yeah, right. yeah. And there's a lot of overlap, I think. Especially if you go further back in time. Well, where, and there could have been years of cooperation and years of not cooperation, too, I suppose. Yeah. But even yeah, that idea of mixing... I think is a like we're using English to speak I I don't really know of any English ancestors I have and so right right? like if somebody was to show up they'd be like oh these folks are English it's like well yeah yeah. (laughs) maybe (laughs) (laughs) yeah a lot more blurry lines in the past. I think often people try to extend these these concepts of like modern nation states onto the past, where I don't think it necessarily fits. Right, right. Did I already ask you how to say canoe? 
Canoe. Canoe, canoe is the same. Canoe is canoe. Canoe is the same in uh, Cree and Ojibwe. Jiman. The Ojibwe would pronounce it a little bit more like J, and the Cree would say a little bit more like Ch. Ch. Yeah. 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 But Jiman. And the Shabi seems to have a J in it, kind of. Yeah, too, yeah. We vo- we vocalize a lot. We don't have like these vocal stops, like Simakan. Um, we would say like Jirmagan, right? Yeah. Brief. Attempt at linguistics. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We used to have a ski jump over there where the sign is up on that hill. Oh, really? <laughs> they fucking <laughs> like killer. They were just crazy back in the day. They didn't give a shit, you know? You want to kill yourself? Come on down to the ski jump. We might mop you up at the end of the day. We might not. Apparently, they were a thing. They were like all around the place. There's there was one in North Dakota that everybody just got in ski jumping, I guess. Really? Yeah. <laughs> Back in the 30s. Or whatever. <laughs> Jeez, eh? So uh, the, the way I'm working this edge, it's, it's like a knife. And so you can kind of see, I am trying to create those little serrations where there are little bits of... Uh, so I am, I'm trying to make this like a, a cutting for a, a knife. And so you can see, I am creating these serrades as I go along. That the edge isn't perfectly, like just smooth. That there's jaggedness to it, and it's in that jaggedness that you really get the keen, sharp edges with lithics, with stone. Very nice. That looks exactly like knives uh, I've seen in textbooks and stuff. So mm. cool. Just gonna do a few more last finishing touches, and then I'll sure call her down. Is this uh, another copper striker? That was a nugget of pure copper from Lake Superior. That didn't go through a refinery or anything. That's how it was found, and then a guy got it from. He pounded it into like a little ingot shape. But that was a nugget of pure copper from Lake Superior. Lake Superior. Yeah. So the, on on western Lake Superior, there around the Guianao Peninsula, and up onto Isle Royale, and also like the glaciers would scour that area, and they pushed a whole bunch kind of in a spread from there towards the south and southwest. Yeah, they're they're in the same way that you know people are like I found me a gold nugget. You can there are lots of copper in that area, and so the ancestors would seek it out. And in some areas, there was some pretty intensive mining that occurred. Wow. Yeah. Misquabic, misquabic, the red metal. Misquabic, the red metal. Yeah. And so here at the end, I switched to a finer point just to a little bit more control. One of my favorite um, mm-hmm. weapons, hunting tools, or whatever, mm-hmm. is uh, the in between the spear and the arrow is the atlatl. Yes, it's one of my favorite <laughs> things to play around with. For yeah. sure. you know, you don't need the string. You can make a lot of sticks. No point on them. Yeah. Eh? Do you, was there much of that going on in Anishinaabe or Cree territory? Do you think, or is that a, uh, is that even North American? Yes, but the question is when. So in this neck of the woods, around 2,000, 1,800 years ago, or between about 9,000 years ago and about 1,800 years ago, that was the, the atlatl was the main implement. But around 2,000 years ago, there was the, we, archaeologists sometimes call it a cultural package, where all of a sudden pottery and bow and arrow kind of come into the area and they become the dominant ways. Where women are making pottery and men are focusing a lot with bow and arrow. Yeah. 
And so it seems like in this neck of the woods, around 2,000 years ago, the atlatl essentially, it just stopped really being used. But prior to that, it was. And we know this from the size of the projectiles, that this point, you know, that's way too small for an atlatl. Right, right. So when you find tiny points like that, that's an arrow. But prior to 2,000 years ago, the points were they're larger, much larger, too large for an arrow. And so the atlatl was preserved in Central America. That's even where that, that word we have comes from. Atlatl. It's a Nahuatl word. Atlatl. And so, yeah, you, you know, when the, the Spanish showed up, the Aztecs were hurling Atlatls at them, right? right? <laughs> so they, they continued to maintain that technology in that neck of the woods in a way that I think up here we didn't. Around 2,000 years ago, we stopped using that so much. It um, may have been used occasionally, but the bow and arrow was preferred. Lighter, more distance, you know? Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Switch from the sundial to the clock. Often when we find, say, knives like this, in this neck of the woods, archaeologists will sometimes call this like a D-shaped biface, where, you know, it has slightly more curved and a slightly less curved side. This sort of D-shaped biface. This is a very common knife form in this area here. You know, starting around maybe, you know, maybe around 3,000 years ago um, until... You know, basically until the steel knives started percolating through the trade routes. And how would you say knife in uh, Anishinaabe? Uh, Mokman. It's very similar Mokuman, to Cree. Mokman in Cree. Mokman yeah. is a small knife. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. And so, there we go. That one is yours. Are you sure? Absolutely. Oh, man, that Absolutely. is beautiful. That is beautiful. Absolutely. That's so incredible how big of a block this came from you know like in my mind that was a big chunk of <laughs> yeah. stuff for sure and every one of these flakes every one of the large flakes that came off you know each of these could be made into arrowheads right okay right and so that would be or just use as cutting pieces oh yeah yeah the, yeah they may be used as cutting you, pieces you could make a little arrowhead out of almost every one of those every right? one of these larger flakes absolutely wow yeah You know, um, the person that taught me, that, or that, you know, introduced me to flint napping, mm -hmm. you were talking about people discovering things like that, and uh, his story, and I believe him, mm -hmm. he went into a museum somewhere, I might have one. Oh, yeah, go ahead. He went into a museum somewhere, in the area where he, you know, mm -hmm. lives, and um, saw one of his arrowheads in the museum. Mm. Somebody had uh, claimed to have found it, you know, or whatever. Mm -hmm. I think he tried to tell the curator that that's my arrowhead. I made that. <laughs> you know, I lost it or whatever. And like, oh no, no, that's not possible. They tried to correct him. Yeah. But his argument was, if you've made an arrowhead, you know you've made the arrowhead. You don't forget it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah right. I spent an hour staring at that rock. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. And then I lost it right. for another two hours so there would have been that signature in a community someone like yourself might have been able to pick one up and say oh this is you know so and so's arrowhead exactly yeah sometimes i mean there's not as many flint nappers around today but sometimes i can see a point that i'll like hey that looks like nathan's work right yeah well this has been a good round one i really appreciate it yeah no problem there's another word that's similar like fire right fire we just say shkode. 
Skodé. As opposed to Escoteo. 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 Yeah. How about smoke? Ah, I can't remember it. Nope, I can't remember. Pitwa in Cree, I think. Huh? Pitwa. Tobacco is another that's similar. Um, we say sema, and I think in Cree it's like chistema. And the Anishinaabe would traditionally have had tobacco. I think, yeah, I would say we were the northern neighbors of the Haudenosaunee and like the Wendat. They were farmers. Farmers. Well, yeah. horticulturalists or whatever. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the three sisters in tobacco. Yeah. Also, I mean, there are there are also species of wild tobacco. I don't know if there's many in this area, but I know in Montana there are some species of wild tobacco and yeah. the old trade routes, of course, right? Yeah. Right. Things would get around. Yeah. Seeds get dropped. Yeah. This has been a lot of fun, for sure. I'm quite content with that tobacco, thank you. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah, I've been thinking about... But I'd like to do indigenous outdoors and concentrating on teaching young people this type of stuff. Uh. Um, getting them out, getting them out canoeing, getting them out setting snares, getting them out doing this kind of stuff, right? kids from the inner city or whatever that might not have the opportunity otherwise exactly you know to to kind of do that uh-huh idea so yeah that's that sounds awesome yeah i i'd be happy to be involved and yeah right excellent, <laughs> excellent. That sounds really good. i'll leave this going while we pack up I'll wrap this in my glove and hopefully remember not to slide my hand <laughs> exactly Knife River Flint. All right, I might even have to take a, a little blade as well. Take a trip down there, mm. you know, because I'm going to be. Have busy. you ever seen the quarries? No, I haven't. But a friend of mine down there has uh, spoken about going and seeing them for sure. It's like a, it was like intense extraction. Like if you see that area, like a satellite image of that area, it's like a moonscape where it's just like pockmarked with holes. Just all the digging pits. That just like intense. pits overlapping, pits overlapping, pits. Yeah. Like wow. people were like intensively extracting that raw material there for millennia. Cool. Yeah. Do you feel that would have been a shared resource kind of between nations? Absolutely. Type thing? Like um, much like pipestone? And... Even more so. They've they found knife river flint all the way down in Texas. Like it was wow. traded a long ways. Wow. Yeah. It's been traded, uh, there are some sites east of the Mississippi that have Knife River Flint. Yeah. So we're talking possibly all the way from Mexico up here to northern Canada. Yeah, oh, it, yeah, it's been found northern Alberta. Not like, even possible. It, it, it is. Yeah, it, it's <laughs> a fact. Yeah. I, I don't quite know if it's crossed in, like, the Rio Grande, but definitely down to, from Texas to northern Alberta, absolutely. Wow. Yeah. That's an extensive trade route. For sure. <laughs> yeah. For sure. Yeah. Okay, to reactivate them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that copper, all this stuff is just so cool. One of my absolute favorite museum uh, pieces is uh, in, it is in Plentywood, Montana, uh -huh. and it is a piece of buffalo spine with an arrowhead lodged in it. So <laughs> it is just the coolest thing to see. I just, I look at it in reverence every time, you know, and it creates this whole mental story and picture. And exactly. Just, what a perfect shot, you know? Well, yeah, but that buffalo might have got away. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> that's true. It, it, right? It, 
it, it didn't just hit the heart. It was like the shot was a little high, and then... Right, right. So you feel it would have been a missed shot, and he wasn't going for no, I, uh, crippling... It could it could have crippled him in the spine, but that's a hard shot. I mean, even today, you know, hunters, they don't aim for the spine today. No. Right? No, yeah. They'll go for the heart, the lungs, even the head. The Things head that'll really... Right. Yeah. From what I understand, it took a good five or six arrows. Oh, yeah, definitely. On horseback to take down a... Buffalo. Even before horseback, uh, there's a site here just west of Saskatoon. They were expanding the highway, and they kind of they punched into this large-scale bison site. And uh, you know, there's probably the remains of about 40, 50 bison there. But they found well, like in the neighborhood of 150 arrow points. And so you know, that's three arrows per bison. Right. Not even counting the ones they kept and took with them as they left. Right. Right. Yeah. Or and they didn't find. And, yeah. yeah. Wow. And most of those arrows. Those arrow points were even smaller than this. Like most of them were hardly much bigger than your thumbnail, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So you would have to have a well-placed. <laughs> yeah. This book I have is pretty interesting. It's written kind of through a colonial lens, huh. but it's got some good stories about North Dakota. If you want to borrow it, and sure, have thank a you. Look at it, yeah, for sure. Till next time I see you. Like I said, you know, they're not, the authors are non-indigenous and they take pot shots at various, you know, whatever. But if you can look past that, mm -hmm. there's some good, mm. good day-to-day -day living, you know, kind of stuff. Nice, okay. They're, they're not fans of Sitting Bull. <laughs> oh. Oh. And you get a lot of, this particular band of natives was the good kind. They cooperated, you know, but, oh, yeah. you know, it is what it is. You have to pick out the good parts, you know. Shit, eh? So what do you do with the shavings? A lot of the, like, the larger flakes, I will rework into small points like this. A lot of it I end up just, I'll throw it out. When I was younger, I used to just go throw it in the bush, and then like an archaeologist is like, "What are you doing? You're just gonna confuse us ten years from now, right?" <laughs> right. Yeah, that, that's pretty funny. So now I'll often throw it like in a dumpster, so it'll wind up in a city dump and confuse somebody twenty thousand years 20, from now. <laughs> right. Apparently, uh, in between playing Xbox and going to Seven Eleven, they were primitively hunting. That's great. Like uh, I, I've heard some. Flint nappers, if they do leave it in the bush, they'll bury it with like a, a bunch of modern glass or nails or something, just so if somebody finds it, they at least know like Period th there's some modern and, shit mixed in with yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. With a bottle cap or something. Yeah, exactly. Just as a, a time stamp of that when it was. You want that small little point too? Yeah, I'd love to have that. Yeah, sure. For sure. Yeah, that. so that's, yeah, like a more southern Mississippian style. Southern Mississippian style. Sometimes I feel like I'm, you know, treading outside my, my bounds when I make some of those styles, because I, I can't really claim those folks as my ancestors. I think those ones were probably made by uh, Kadoan people. Kado people. Um, but they were a series of flint napping down there. They had, uh, you know, they, they had permanent villages that were set up supported by agriculture and so they did have like specialized 
craftsmen who only flintknapped or only made pottery. And so their styles of their artwork were really nice. And so I, I often aspire to that level of skill. Right, mm -hmm. right. Unfortunately, we have to make livings and we can't really, you know, buy groceries. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know. well, so did they, though, you know. You have to buy the other things going on. Yeah. In order to oh, yeah. have that level of mastery, that's pretty awesome. Okay. Well, are you doing handshakes? Right on, man. This has been great. Thanks again. This is Eric Standing and... Gabriel LaMarche with Indigenous Outdoors. Thank you. Thanks a lot, Gabe. It's pretty clear to me that your passion for making arrowheads flows over onto your other work. It's always a pleasure to talk to somebody who truly enjoys what they do for a living. I'm really glad I was able to spend this time here, Gabriel, and I look forward to working on flint napping projects with you. Until our paths cross again, keep making the world a better place by being a historian, craftsman, and all-around chill person. We want to thank you for enjoying another episode of Indigenous Outdoors with us. Most of all, we'd like to thank the Knowledge Keepers for their willingness to take the time to learn our traditional ways and to share that knowledge. We try our best to get things right and to honor the old ways as we learn them and as they relate to the region we are in. I'm Eric Standing on the Road and I'd like to thank you for taking an interest in Indigenous teachings. We hope you are able to enjoy the outdoors with us soon. Hi, hi.